This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor decided not to talk about the COVID-19 crisis, at least not to the media. He skipped the usual briefing on Tuesday, and that was just fine with State Senator Jason Pizzo, who says he's tired of the BS over Florida's failed unemployment compensation system and the fundamental lack of human empathy from some of Florida's top officials. I'm not getting the emotional buy-in. I mean, Senator Scott appears to be the coldest and most rigid. I mean, expressing disdain and contempt, really, for a class of people. But uh, the governor also does not seem to be too emotionally involved. I would like a few minutes less on COVID response and how wrong liberal media news outlets were about the apocalypse that was coming with the virus. And I'd like to see a couple minutes just expressed from the governor to the the public, to his constituents, which is everyone, all 21,700,000 of us, that you appreciate and understand that there are single moms and desperate dads and cancer patients and seniors that are that have nothing and are afraid about being evicted. You'll hear more from Senator Pizzo during the Sunrise interview. Dr. Anthony Fauci testifies before a U.S. Senate committee and warns about the danger of reopening states too soon. He says it could kill more people and do more damage to the economy. Florida got a shout out during that hearing from the head of the CDC. The state attorney general says Floridians have received nearly half a million dollars in refunds from businesses accused of inflating prices during the COVID-19 pandemic. Florida State University will spend more than $400,000 funding 26 projects regarding the coronavirus. The research will try to explain the effects of COVID-19 and investigate how humanity can cope with the changes. The Citrus Commission will spend more money advertising Florida orange juice, which has become more popular during the pandemic. They'll be using money from their travel budget because no one at the commission is traveling anymore. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and hear the latest about Florida man and his better half, who was accused of stabbing her husband with a screwdriver to protect her sister. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, May 13th. Let's start with the numbers. State health officials have confirmed 941 more cases of COVID-19 in the past 24 hours. That raises the statewide count to almost 42,000. The death toll has reached 1,849, an increase of 44 in one day. 31 of those new fatalities were residents or staffers at long-term care facilities. The man Americans rely upon for accurate information during the COVID-19 crisis is warning of suffering and death that could be avoided and of further economic damage if states reopen too quickly. Dr. Anthony Fauci was one of four top officials testifying remotely at a hearing in the U.S. Senate titled COVID-19, Safely Getting Back to Work and Back to School. My concern is that if states or cities or regions, uh, their attempt, understandable, to get back to some form of normality, disregard to a greater or lesser degree the checkpoints that we put in our guidelines about when it is safe to proceed in pulling back on mitigation. Because I feel if that occurs, there is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you may not be able to control, which in fact, paradoxically will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but could even set you back on the road to trying to get economic recovery, because it would almost turn the clock back rather than going forward. That is my major concern. In response to questions from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Fauci said he believes the actual death toll is higher than the official one and that we have to prepare for a second wave. The official statistic, uh, Dr. Fauci, is that 80,000 Americans have died uh, from the pandemic. There are some epidemiologists who suggest the number may be 
50% higher than that. What do you think? I'm not sure, Senator Sanders, if it's going to be 50% higher, but most of us feel that the number of deaths are likely higher than that number because th given the situation, particularly in New York City, when they were really strapped with a very serious challenge to their healthcare system, that there may have been people who died at home who did have COVID, who were not counted as COVID because they never really got to the hospital. So in direct answer to your question, I think you are correct that the number is likely higher. I, I don't know exactly what percent right. higher, but almost certainly it's higher. Are we fearful that if we don't get our act together, as bad as the situation is now, it could become worse uh, in the fall or winter? That possibility does exist. And the reason I say that is that when you talk about, will this virus just disappear? And as I've said publicly many times, that is just not going to happen because it's such a highly transmissible virus. And even if we get better control, it is likely that there will be virus somewhere in this, on this planet that will eventually get back to us. So my, my approach towards the possibility of a rebound in a second wave, it's entirely conceivable and possible that it would happen. But I would hope that between now and then, given the capability of doing the testing and the ability of us to stock up on personal protective equipment and the workforce that the CDC under Dr. Redfield will be putting forth to be able to identify, isolate, and contact trace. I hope that if we do have the threat of a second wave, we will be able to deal with it very effectively to prevent it from becoming an outbreak, not only worse than now, but much, much less. Florida does not have any senators who serve on that committee, but the Sunshine State did get a mention from the CDC director, Robert Redfield. Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina asked him about what's known as biosurveillance to map current outbreaks and anticipate them in the future. Uh, Dr. Redfield, we have authorized in this committee and appropriated out of Congress multiple times over the last few decades money for biosurveillance, and you talked about it. Why has CDC not contracted with private sector technology companies to try to use their tools for biosurveillance? Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, this is a critical issue, as you know, and, and also uh, comes into one of the uh, core capabilities I talked about, data analytics and data modernization, which we're appreciative of the, the additional funding Congress has given. I can tell you that uh, this is under a critical review now. We do have uh, contracts with some of the private sector groups now to try to make uh, the type of availability of data that we've seen with Florida available in all uh, of our jurisdictions across the country and, uh, um, and, and, and in the process of making that happen. Florida State University will spend more than 400000 bucks to fund 26 projects addressing questions related to COVID-19. Projects include exploring possible therapies, the development of tools for tracking infections, and an examination of how the pandemic has affected mental health. While many of these proposals involve medical research, there are also projects that examine the broad impacts of a disease that has affected life in so many ways. The way we work, study eat, play, and even live together has changed. That research will try to explain the effects of COVID-19 and investigate how humanity can cope with the changes.
Floridians have already received nearly half a million dollars in refunds from businesses accused of inflating prices during the COVID-19 pandemic. Attorney General Ashley Moody says the state's price gouging hotline has been contacted 4,400 times and more than $497,000 has been returned to consumers since a state of emergency was declared in March. It's been two months since the governor declared a state of emergency in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Since that time, my office has worked diligently to secure hundreds of thousands of dollars in refunds, deactivate online posts offering items for outrageous prices, and secure vital evidence to advance our price gouging investigations. We have received thousands of tips from consumers in Florida. And as we slowly start to reopen, I want to remind Floridians to remain vigilant. Don't let your guard down, as we are more successful when we work together. So please keep sending us price gouging reports and tips about emerging scams. You can contact our office by calling 1-866-9-NO-SCAM, visiting myfloridalegal.com, or downloading our price gouging reporting app, No Scam. Your tip may provide the evidence we need to take down a fraudster or secure a refund for a consumer struggling in this economic downturn. Violating the state price gouging law can mean penalties of 1000 bucks per violation, up to $25,000 per day. The Florida Citrus Commission decides to shift more than a quarter million dollars to beef up their digital advertising for OJ during the pandemic. The campaign is targeted at lapsed orange juice buyers, mostly parents between 30 and 60 who haven't purchased juice during the past month. Now, most of that money will come from the commission's travel budget because, well, they're not traveling anymore. The agency's global marketing staff is no longer on the road. They're working online or by phone. The Citrus Commission has also canceled plans for a media presentation in Arizona on the benefits of orange juice and they will not be attending a dietitian's conference in Canada. Now, this announcement came at the same time the USDA was releasing a revised estimate of Florida's citrus crop. Oranges are down by half a percent, grapefruit down almost 6%. Next up on the Sunrise interview, a conversation with State Senator Jason Pizzo, who has been trying to help people navigate Florida's unemployment compensation system. He is not a happy camper. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local healthcare provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org/covid for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is State Senator Jason Pizzo of Miami-Dade, who has been back in the state capitol for the past few weeks trying to make some sense of the unemployment system. He had high hopes when the governor ordered Department of Management Services Director Jonathan Sater to take over the failed system. Those hopes have now faded. He's also troubled by the lack of human empathy by Governor DeSantis and especially U.S. Senator Rick Scott, the man who created the failed system back when he was governor. At this pace, with 715,000 outstanding claims to be paid, you're looking at 26, 27 days before you catch up. And that's going to put us back into the situation where people are back to work. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, it, you know, I don't want to say that I'm, I think it's so deviant, malicious or nefarious uh, to, to be to be the to be the uh, intent behind it. But I think the result is going to be that a lot of people are going to be up and working again, getting back to some sense of normalcy on an income basis 
And I guess they're hoping for short-term memories that people don't have the 13 hours anymore to stay home and try to get on somebody with a call center and navigate the website, and that a lot of people will forget about it. So it sounds like you're just basically saying their strategy is stall, 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 and wait for everyone to go back to work and then say, well, they don't need it anymore. Not, not by design, but it happens to be, it happens to be a resulting residual benefit. Uh, it, it's analogous to that $2.64 you see on your cell phone bill. You're like, what is this for? And you're pretty sure it doesn't apply to you. And so you call customer service, and after 45 minutes on the phone, you start to do a dollar-cost averaging of what your time is worth, and you're like, screw it, and you hang up because your time is worth more. Now, if they do that to a million people a month, that's $35 million a year. So there's two ways to convey value. You can give somebody money or you can forgive something. But in this sense, you're conveying value back to the state on money that they would owe you. And if you don't have the will, the time, or the patience, or the ability, the availability of time to press this issue all the way through and you give up, so to speak, no one's going to be voluntarily knocking on your door trying to give you money here. Because I think we all can understand through the prior administration that the difficulty was seems to be by design. You sound like you're getting a bit frustrated with the whole thing. I'm uh, I'm beyond frustrated. There's there's so many levels here. It's a little Machiavellian uh, when you bring Scott into the mix because there's just this, you know, a, a one-off statement made maybe in the wrong company or, or what have you, but there's been an extended treatment of this issue from Senator Rick Scott, both in public forum and private <clears throat> you know, to donors and to the general public about his position and, and characterizing this unemployment crisis as, you know, people living lavishly and people whining. And it just seems like he has this general disdain and like strange contempt for those who need assistance, which is just to me a little psychologically bizarre because, you know, my family were from very, very humble means, you know, probably on par with how humble his beginnings were and and we have my father has enjoyed you know the same if not greater success than he has and we're we're appreciative of of how lucky and fortunate we were and look for ways to give back whether it's service through donations or service through 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 I'm, i'm the first one in my family ever to be elected but you know just looking for any possible way that we can perform service and deliver service to people that are less fortunate and this is a situation that as it relates to Governor DeSantis. Rick, no, one, no one's going to blame Ron DeSantis for the fact that we were invaded by a virus. Just the normal course of human behavior and interaction and you know travel and association and community relations. No one blames them for that, but there's just too much time and energy being spent on saying, see, you were wrong to the media and high-fiving you know, and making appearances about, about how great everything is. No, no one's going to blame Rick Scott when this is all over about coronavirus. And, you know, we don't want to lose lives and we want to take precautions. So we, we lessen the number of, of deaths and sickness and residual effects. But what people are going to blame Rick Scott for is the fact that they defaulted on their mortgage or their rent or their car loan. And that, that's on the governor uh, at this point. You know, I, I, I break it up like this. I tell people, you know, they're like, well, you know, who's to blame? I said, well, for the month of March, you know, DeSantis can blame Rick Scott in the prior administration. And for the first two weeks in April, when he started to take a hard look that it wasn't really working, he can blame Ken Lawson for being inept. Uh, and then, you know, everything looked good, you know, set it and forget it with Secretary Satter 
coming on board April 15th. And, and I would have agreed if you took a snapshot of the first week that he was on board from April 15th to April 22nd. But it's been a downward spiral where claims and inquiries have far outpaced payments. And again, if you look at the delta between outstanding unique claims to be paid and, and the rate of which we're paying, you know, it's another month before everyone's made whole. I noticed we're also rejecting about, uh, I think the math is 38% of the applications are being ruled ineligible. Has anyone been Correct. able to explain that to you? So what I did was, you know, everyone talks in the sort of macro, you know, generalities about thousands of these and thousands of those. And you can get overwhelmed by looking at the second page of the DO dashboard by looking at the workflow details. So if you go in the DO dashboard, you go up to the top right, you hit workflow details. It'll do a breakdown of those that are sitting in the silo of fraud detection, employer wage verification, ID verification, things like that. And just looking at that huge number, you can be sort of overwhelmed and not know where to begin. So what I did is, you know, we have all different types of media. We have Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook pages and our emails and our phone numbers and friends of friends. I just randomly selected six women, actually, uh, one that's a cancer patient, one that's 33 weeks pregnant, 34 weeks at this point, uh, and a couple people that have expressed suicidal ideations because they believe they've failed as parents and want to end it all or they feel so alone and so trapped. So I picked six names. I think only one is actually my constituent. So I didn't do it specifically to my 15 cities. I tried to get a broad sort of scope. I wrote down six names and their claim and IDs. And last Wednesday afternoon, about 345, I walked it over to the governor's office and gave it to um, one of the governor's staff members and said, listen, you know, you're hearing all different things from all different people and agencies and divisions and levels and rumors and all that stuff. Before any of that fester into facts, take these six names that I vetted for their prior work history and their residency and everything looked kosher, and let me know, get back to me promptly on the status of these six individuals who right now are sitting in ineligible status. And I was told right away, uh, we are almost a week later, and I would say three have been given full treatment. They've all been found to be eligible now that they've, getting, they've gotten individual unique treatment from DEO personnel and staff. And so the takeaway from, from what I gave them results in sort of two axioms that you can, you know, that hold true right now. The first is the large numbers, if I'm using a sample set, a small polling sample set, suggests that there are thousands of others who are eligible that are just being kicked out for some technical or weird reason, arbitrary reason. And the, sec the second thing to me selfishly uh, as part of probably more ego than anything else is I just gave six names and it's taken a week for someone at the governor's office whose job it is to make sure that there's good communication between and relationships between the legislature and the governor's office. And we are, we're on our sixth day here and I can't get a full treatment and answer for, for all six. So how does that bode for John and Susie Q public in Ocala who don't have a direct line to a state senator who isn't submitting their name and claimant and status and asking for an answer, uh, it doesn't bode well. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's by design. I'm not being malicious about this. I'm not being calculating, but I'm a former prosecutor. and We had to present competent evidence. We had to follow rules and procedure. We had to convey the facts of the case mixed with very little drama and, and, and attempt to be dispassionate about it. And employing those same principles, my chief of staff is a 15-year veteran prosecutor, now with a 65% pay cut being my aide, 
My other aide is a former police sergeant. My other aide is a judicial assistant. So we're all used to having to tell the truth. Uh, and we're all used to, you know, an expedient and efficient system, you know, to bring justice. And this is really analogous and no different. And so when someone's like, oh, I can think of a thousand reasons. Great. Name one. And that's effectively what we're doing. It's like, oh, it could be this. It could be this. It could be this. And so when the governor last Monday gets up at a 6 p.m. press conference and says he's really pleased with the upward trajectory and the efficiencies that's coming on board with Secretary Satter making payments in a truly efficient manner, that everyone who filed in March should pretty well assume that they either screwed up their application or they're not eligible. I was aghast, and actually I was physically in the room. And that was the day that they delayed the 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 revised, updated version of the DEO dashboard until 6 p.m. until his press conference when it, when it came out. And then to find out for the next 48 hours, it was so anemic that they had only paid out uh, that small number of uh, – 2,831. That's immediately following his press conference. It was embarrassing. But I, I'm, not, I'm not getting the emotional buy-in. Um, I mean, Senator Scott is, is, appears to be the coldest and most rigid. I mean, expressing disdain and contempt, really, for a class of people. But uh, the governor also does not seem to be too emotionally involved. I would like a few minutes less on COVID response and how wrong liberal media news outlets were about the apocalypse that was coming with the virus. And I'd like to see a couple minutes just expressed from the governor to the, to the public, to his constituents, which is everyone, all 21,700,000 of us, that you appreciate and understand that there are single moms and desperate dads and cancer patients and seniors that, are, that have nothing and are afraid about being evicted. And, and as sort of an ancillary sort of accessory to, to all this is his executive order 2094 expires on Sunday. That's May 17th. And that date looms large for a number of, I mean, a large number of people who expect to be evicted out of their home come Monday morning, the 18th. So I've asked for that to be extended, but I haven't got an answer yet. No one, nobody is rooting harder for Governor DeSantis to get this working more than I am. This is not a, this is not a partisan play. No one truly, genuinely, on my children, I will tell you, is rooting harder for Governor DeSantis to get this moving and to convey some bit of sympathy to the constituents more than I am. You've been listening to State Senator Jason Pizzo on Sunrise. Your daily calendar of political events begins at 9 in the morning. That's when the State Board of Education holds a conference call to hear a presentation by the Florida Association of District School Superintendents about issues involved in reopening school campuses. The Florida Commission on Offender Review meets by conference call at 9. The University of West Florida Board of Trustees meets remotely at 9 to discuss issues including COVID-19. At 9.30, the Department of Transportation holds a webinar of a task force that's working on the Southwest Central Florida Connector. That's a project that includes a new toll road from Collier to Polk counties. The State Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission is scheduled to meet at 9.30, and the Florida Peanut Advisory Council is holding a conference call at 11.30. Finally, it's time to check in with Florida Man, and let's just say things are getting a bit stabby. A Florida man is accused of stabbing another Florida man with a homemade throwing star, and boy did he pick the wrong guy. When police arrived at the scene of the fight, they found the victim holding his attacker in a headlock face down in a flower bed. The victim told cops he was talking to someone when 28-year-old Robert Hartsock of Pensacola walked up, began mouthing off, and then pulled out a sharp object and cut him. Hartsock is charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. The victim suffered a minor cut in his arm and was treated at the scene. 
Finally, a Florida couple's afternoon in the park ends with both of them in jail on battery charges. Jerry and Latrice Harris of Vero Beach were grilling oysters when Jerry got into an argument with Latrice's sister. When she left, deputies say Jerry followed her, doused her with beer, and chucked the bottle at her. Investigators with the Indian River County Sheriff's Office say Latrice picked up the screwdriver her husband was using to shuck oysters and stabbed him in the top of the head, giving her sister time to escape. Jerry is charged with misdemeanor battery. His wife, Latrice, is charged with felony aggravated battery. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.